Hello, and welcome to Preprints in Motion. This is the only show bringing you the freshest science directly from the hottest new scientists. So join us as we discuss science, preprints, and academia. So hit that subscribe button and join us every first and third Wednesday for a brand new episode, or find us on Twitter at MotionPod or online at preprintsinmotion.com. But for now, let's get into the show. This week we're joined by three different guests. So join us as we talk about Wikipedia, citations, and the COVID-19 pandemic. So thank you for having us. Thank you for agreeing to be on. It looks just as sunny where you are as it is here for once. Yes. <laughs> Global warming will do that. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us. And this is a really, really cool preprint because it's spot on the kind of stuff I was looking at earlier this year and sort of towards the end of last year. Um, and I just wish I'd come across it earlier when before we submit <laughs> our paper. Um, so I guess I guess to start, it, because there's three guests and I'm only barely getting to grips with handling one guest, why don't you each introduce yourselves and give us sort of a little bit of background as to who you are, what you do? Sure. So I'll start. I'm Omer Ben Jacob, and uh, I'm kind of on the border between an academic and a journalist. Uh, and I've dedicated kind of the five, six, last five, six years of my life to researching Wikipedia and writing about Wikipedia. And the reason is that I think uh, that, you know, kind of the role of facts or the social process in which facts are made is actually a very, very important process. Uh, and one that has historically been very ubiquitous or been, been when one, historically been a process that's very hard to kind of see. Uh, so my academic training is in the history of science and philosophy of science. And I think Wikipedia allows us kind of a new level of access to the social process of fact-making. And I'm very intrigued by that, both as a journalist and a researcher. And my kind of connection to this project began with Rona a few years ago, uh, with Dr. Rona Aviram, who will shortly introduce herself. And we've actually spent some time doing a whole bunch of kind of uh, Wikipedia-related research uh, about the way just Wikipedia and science interact, based on this assumption that, you know, people aren't actually reading academic research, but they certainly are reading Wikipedia. Uh, so that's kind of just very generally who I am and what I do. And I work for Aretz, which is Israel's kind of left-leaning newspaper. And I actually do write about Wikipedia as almost like a fake news correspondent, like a disinformation correspondent. Um, I think I'll go next and we can have this sort of uh, gradient from uh, philosophy extreme to science extreme. So I, I will serve as an intermediate. Uh, my academic training is in biology, uh, life science. I've uh, recently finished my uh, PhD in the Weizmann Institute of Science. And my informal training is in arts and cinema and philosophy, uh, mostly via Omer. Uh, so we grew up together and we studied uh, cinema in school. And from there, I had kind of shift, you can say, into biology and life science, which is what I've been doing uh, for the last decade. And during this time, I have tried to play along this interface between science and the arts. And I think uh, from this is uh, my ongoing collaboration with Omer and also other philosophical uh, philosophy projects, but also very much interested in uh, hardcore science and biology. And with that in the lab is how I met uh, Dr. Jonathan Sobel. And I think he will introduce himself from here. Okay, so um, I, already, I originally come from Switzerland. 
Lausanne. I did uh, my training uh, at EPFL. So it's a kind of the uh, biggest uh, technological institute in uh, Switzerland. I was uh, formerly trained uh, in computational biology. I was mainly interested in genomics and um, data mining, um, basically. And a few years back, I, um, I, I came to Israel and I, I joined Rona's lab, so the, the lab of uh, Gadasher in chronobiology. And uh, that's how I met Rona and uh, she introduced me to, to Homer. And before that, side to my uh, academic training during my PhD, I was part of a biohacker space and I was the uh, computer wizard of, uh, of that, uh, that space. And um, yeah, I, I was, thanks to, to, to this association, I, I, I really um, worked a lot around uh, uh, community work, uh, around uh, uh, science popularization, open access, and, and really the, the, the preprint uh, the, uh, was, uh, I think, to me, the, the best way of communicating science. And I always, uh, kind of try to convince all my PIs that we should preprint like as uh, as soon as possible because it's it's nice to first show what we are doing and secondly interact with the community to get maybe feedbacks or find new collaboration to go forward. I'm right there with you on that one. I tell everyone to preprint constantly. I said what I want to say is that I think it's interesting because like we all come from such different kind of backgrounds and have such different skill sets like I'm really like it really took me time to kind of even understand what you know quantitative research was because I'm so from so deep in the qualitative world and I think what's what the, the common denominator between all of us is this kind of idea that there is a lot a lot a lot of value in academic work but there is a structural issue and I think like if you look at Jonathan's work kind of what he was doing in Lausanne like his interest in open access is, you know, in a sense, it's very kind of classic science, like he was interested from scientific motivations, but it's very similar in a sense to my interest in Wikipedia, in that you're, we're trying to find kind of th these points of interaction where people actually touch science. And what's interesting is also is how these kind of academic practices, you know, actually manifest in the world, because Wikipedia is in a sense a form of open access peer review, not for, you know, not necessarily for preprints or not necessarily for cutting edge research, but you know, for, for how we phrase certain things or, or what we consider common knowledge. So in that sense, I do see a very kind of clear cut through line through all of our kind of careers and arcs. No, I, it's, it's a nice coincidence. So we don't really know your backgrounds until we do the background reading on you all. Um, but yeah, so the biology interests seem to overlap what I'm heading towards in the lab. So my research at the moment is unfortunately heading very much in towards a circadian rhythm aspect which I, I, i'm sick of working nights um because we don't have a nice light dark room so <laughs> i have to actually do it at, at the times but then also you know i've coming back to the code work that I, I did last year i've stepped out away from the lab and i've tried to do some more of that qualitative stuff and to really get to grips with how we do science which is a i think it's not a question that scientists ask often enough i would argue i think we sometimes get a bit squirreled away in the lab and we forget to step back and think about how we're doing the science and how we're communicating the science. So how did you find jumping into that hardcore science? And then I'm going to ask the reverse question. I want to start actually with, I'll, I'll let you on to talk about that, this current study, but I want to actually just contextualize something because I think it's really interesting what you said. 
our first paper, so the paper me and Lona did that kind of launched this Wikipedia research uh, adventure, was about the, f the field of circadian clocks and circadian rhythms. And our first research was actually uh, a very, very uh, qu qualitative research, not quantitative one. And it was based on a hypothesis that I had that uh, because Wikipedia up updates daily, that if you were to go through all the different versions of an article, you would actually get the contemporary history of a field. And what me and Rona did is actually kind of recreate or at least kind of map out the way the different versions of the Wikipedia article for circadian clocks and circadian rhythms mirrored the field at different points over time. But it was a completely qualitative work. So we didn't do quantitative analysis of, you know, how many edits and citations. We were just looking at the actual wordings, what papers were cited, where were they cited, what semantic role did a certain paper play at different times. And, 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 you know, just to, so it's funny that you say that because like our actual kind of proof of concept case study was circadian clocks and circadian rhythms. And I heard all about how hard uh, not sleeping is. <laughs> yeah, not, not fun. I mean, really interesting, but how, how did you find jumping into that side of things? Cause so you're, you've, you've done your, you've just submitted your MA. So I guess you're jumping quite heavily into hard science there. Um, I got super lucky, like in that sense, like I shouldn't talk that much, like the, the real scientists here are Rona and uh, Jonathan. I, I, I think I have, like I, I come from the very kind of social world and I would say almost like critical theory world. So a lot of kind of the questions of how science works and why science works are interesting for me at a social perspective. And I really did want to do real research into Wikipedia and, and kind of the partnership initially between me and Rona and now this project with Jonathan as well has been kind of like, how do you take these very interesting social questions and do do them at a level that kind of transcends the anecdotal because I think journalism and a lot of qualitative work is, is very anecdotal and it's kind of, you know, or, or tends to be anecdotal. And, um, and I've learned initially kind of in our first project, Milona, how do you kind of, you know, set methods and what methods could work. And, and I have this joke that we work at the, at the, at the small data scale like big data, big data, like you have to work purely quantitatively, but small data, you can still kind of do like meaning, like you can still retain meaning. So like you can go over 5,000 versions of a Wikipedia article. It'll take a lot of time, but you can do it. You can keep that in your mind. And, and I think like with this project that we want to talk about now, which is about kind of how COVID and COVID related research uh, was manifest or like was presented on Wikipedia, then Jonathan was really good at kind of like, you know, keeping us at uh, like scales that were both significant quantitatively, but also had retained meaning qualitatively. That, that's a really good starting off point because that, so we, after our co first COVID paper, we started to do a follow-up to that where we looked at how preprints changed when they were published. And that meant we had to sit and read the abstracts of 200 preprints about three times. So we read a lot of preprints and papers. Uh, and that was very much trying to keep it sort of quantitative, but also qualitative. Um, just under review at the moment, so we've got our fingers crossed for that. So, so Jonathan and, and Rona, how did you find jumping out of science into that less quantitative aspect? Because that's something I, I enjoyed a lot when I did it, but it's, it is very different, I found. So I believe I'm in a kind of insider-outsider position this whole time. And because of my backgrounds in arts and my formal training in science, there's always this kind of uh, back and forth between methodologies and between worldviews. And I think the, the major challenge here is really finding a place that can be stage 
for this interface because especially from the beginning, uh, the circadian rhythms on Wikipedia study, it, it wasn't really anything, um, it didn't fall into any category. So that was really hard to see how you approach the question, how you answer the question, how do you um, send out your message? So where do you find a home for this? What would be the proper stage from this? And I think this is, I want to say like the, the truly original uh, studies, this is where it comes to, uh, to form and, and the challenge of how do you press this forward? Uh, but for me personally, bridging both worlds is it comes very natural actually <laughs> so for for me for me uh, things were a bit different so uh, i come from computational biology so by by default my uh, my domain is uh, uh, overlapping several fields you know i i needed to to uh, know uh, some notion of biology and at the same time be somewhat good at coding meaning that I'm really in the middle of both and uh, I will never be an expert coder nor a real biologist. So that's, uh, that's the, <laughs> the, the, the main problem here. But anyway, I was always interested to uh, this uh, cross-pollinization between fields. So, so uh, I always liked to collaborate with people inside of academia, of course, but uh, as well outside. So in the association that I mentioned earlier on, we had uh, like designers, we had uh, people who were doing social science as well. And when I met Rona and she, she told me about this project, I, I was really amazed and I, I immediately jumped on it. I, it was really kind of a, a natural topics for me to, to study. And um, then there was this uh, kind of opposition between Omer and me and Rona was the translator basically. So uh, I, I come from a really quantitative field, you know, it's, it's really, I'm counting words, I'm, I'm matching stuff. <laughs> you know, that's my, my, my main point. And I'm doing like a really large scale data analysis, big data, that's, that's what I, I, I'm, I'm really digging into uh, uh, in my academic work. And currently it's more medical data, but before it was biology and so on. And um, so the text mining part uh, from a technical perspective was really interesting to me. And I, I, I wanted to try a different approach to analyze Wikipedia. And um, so the fact is that with the discussion with Omer and, and Rona, we could really try to find a, a middle way. The only quantitative part, you know, it's, you can learn stuff, but at some point it becomes boring. If you're only qualitative, you have a very nice sto story, but it's not backed up by anything. And, and here we, we combine the two approach to have like claims that are uh, somewhat uh, backed up by the, the, the data uh, in a large scale. I want to add just one more small thing, because I think that's a really, really smart point that Jonathan made. I think that like also the kind of methodological methodological tensions or even almost kind of the, the tension between our perspective is something that um, I think a lot of times kind of scientists would prefer to cancel out. Like there's something very fun and simple to just be dedicated to one method and know you're solid. And I think it's very, very important to kind of, you know, understand that these tensions are natural and they're good and they come from kind of different aspects of on the one hand, the desire to tell a good story, but also the desire to do something that is, you know, recreate, recreatable and has some some actual scientific uh, merit to it. And there's this metaphor that I love from the history of science or philosophy of science by uh, Richard Rorty, who's uh, kind of the, you know, one of the founders of uh, 
pragmatic, like neo-pragmatic philosophy. And he has this wonderful metaphor about, you know, scientists try to hold uh, a mirror to nature, but they never ask where they put their foot, like where are they standing when they hold that mirror? And I think that kind of the, the dialogue between all of us was in a sense also about that, like, where are we standing? Like, what are we actually trying to do? Because we're not just like, there's no point in, you know, just like, you know, replicating all the data of Wikipedia. Wikipedia has tons of data. You could represent it as pure data. That's almost not interesting. What are we interested in? What people are reading? Why they're reading it? What sources are being cited and why? And I think in that sense, this the, the tension is part of that kind of almost fundamental question or desire of science to both hold a mirror to nature, but also be conscious of the fact that you're standing on earth while you're holding that mirror. <laughs> And you, you need you need that 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 linchpin, right? You need you need a Rona who can translate and get everyone's points across, and that is that. I think that is the secret to a project like this working well, having somebody who can do that. I I want to follow up on what was always important for us to find in this project, in the previous project, and in all future projects we're going to do, is to find the story and find what is the, the narrative that we want to describe here, whether it has to do with COVID on Wikipedia, with circadian clocks on Wikipedia, but it has to do with every basic science project that I take. What is the story here? And I think this is something that I always try to integrate from, let's say, uh, the film school uh, that Omer and I went to as, as kids, even growing up. How do you find the story here? And I think it's um, sometimes it could be be like embarrassing for old school scientists to talk in terms of uh, stories and protagonists but uh, for me and, and how I was raised this is this is always the key question and I think I'm I'm personally very proud we met. I, I, that's how I approach my work too I, I think good story helps you sell the work helps you form the work to begin with so let, let's let's get into the story so one of the things you found was that less than 1% of all of the academic papers on COVID uh, actually made it onto Wikipedia, which I thought was a very low number. I, I, how does that relate to the rest of Wikipedia? So um, basically for, for this analysis, uh, you have to remember that this was at the end of the, the first wave, probably uh, things have changed a lot uh, in the past months. So um, I, I don't know where we are today. And I, I, I should probably redo an analysis to, to understand that. Um, so at that point, uh, basically the, 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 the method was very simple. We just took uh, all the EuroPMC uh, paper that we could find with a, a list of, of keywords related to COVID-19. We found about 30,000 paper. And uh, then we compared to uh, the, the uh, to the number of those people who were cited within Wikipedia. So it's it's not coronavirus related. Uh, it's really specific to COVID-19. So because there are more literature related on coronavirus in Wikipedia, but the one that were published during the pandemic, basically among those 30,000 papers, uh, only a few of them uh, like 129, if I don't, if I remember correctly, were actually cited at that moment. Yeah. So I mean, the first five months, I think there were what 16,000 preprints and about 30,000 papers. Uh, so no, the, the number of preprints was a bit lower. Um, at at uh, in in April, it was uh, about like 3,000 preprints or uh, something like that. 10% of the 30,000 paper, if I remember well. 
I want to jump in and say something small. No, no, go ahead, Ona. Uh, no, because I'll, I'll just add one small thing. I think the issue of uh, the early phase of the corona is interesting at a number of levels. And in that sense, also part of our motivation. A whole bunch of scientists were stuck at home. This was the reality. Everyone was home and, you know, they were either tweeting about it or they were, you know, <laughs> putting a bit more effort and, you know, trying to do research or editing Wikipedia or whatever. And I think in, in that sense, the, the, the question of representativity to me seemed almost kind of less interesting in compared to kind of the wider question of just like what was actually happening. Like there was this almost like uh, in, when we do this lecture about the preprint, about the, the paper, we talk about this being a perfect storm. You know what I mean? Like this was like uh, everyone was interested in science at this moment. Corona, what is Corona? Blah, blah, blah. But there was also kind of, you know, like outpouring of scientific like knowledge. And, I'm, and I also talk about about things like I think it was also important to remember that people were on Twitter as well like tons of tons of scientific discourse was happening outside or in kind of new media arenas and some of this was also playing out on Wikipedia because Wikipedia though anyone can edit is not actually that willy-nilly so like you can't put anything there and in that sense a, a paper needs to, to be you know you need to get published for example it's like Wikipedia openly prefers in terms of its rules and its style guide published papers over preprints. So in that sense, just that question of, you know, the actual available, like the, what number of actually published papers was may have been actually very low at that time compared to kind of maybe our feeling that, you know, there's tons of research and there's tons of stuff happening. When I, one of your figures is a, uh, a graph of the different sources that are used. And I found it very interesting that the top four by quite, quite a big margin were Nature, Science, The Lancet, and the New England Journal of Medicine, which I mean, they're all, you know, great scientific journals, but if you're a scientist who is in the open access area or promote pre, -pre basically if you're me, uh, you hate all of those four because they, they are the epitome of bad <laughs> science communication and sharing. <laughs> I mean, you know, science recently went and charged, you know, nine and a half thousand dollars per paper now, right? It, it's obscene. Yeah. So why is it, do you think that those four came up? Because obviously they have this reputation outwardly of being amazing right so is it that no it's it's actually i think it's actually technical and that's since i think it's a very good way to understand wikipedia because wikipedia everyone thinks it's willy-nilly and because of that what's actually happened over the past 20 years is they've actually adopted i would say zealously academic like almost fanatically academic uh, standards so wikipedia not only prefers peer review it prefers high impact factor peer review and for research like for medical stuff it will actually even demand meta analysis so wikipedia has higher standards than the new york times in most uh, kind of mainstream media in the sense that, you know, during Corona mainstream media, even very legacy, important legacy papers would write about a preprint while on Wikipedia, a preprint doesn't meet the basic editorial requirement for health or related content. And I think that's a very important kind of also sociological point to understand about Wikipedia is that Wikipedia may have been a historically revolutionary and disruptive force, but it does actually recreate a lot of the previous biases. And I think because everyone is so scared that it would be willy nilly, they just prefer these very old school, heavy legacy kind of journals. And I will also add that though they are in a sense the bad guy, you could argue that though Wikipedia has this very almost vulgar bias towards these heavy institutions, it does actually help make them accessible because Wikipedia is open. So people are reading about the stuff being published in The Lancet when that's a source. And the, the explanation is actually super technical. There's actually a style guide for all COVID and health related stuff that the community put together. And, and, and that style guide comes with a list of, of, of recommended sources. And those, the, the, within those sources are exactly the sources that we saw. So it's an, actually a very good example of how Wikipedia managed to maintain these standards collectively.
I would say this is a good example of uh, the tension between the qualitative and the quantitative aspects of our research. And here, even though we saw all these, uh, we know the sources of these studies, but we don't know the impact of these specific papers that were cited. And I think we can learn a lot from the previous example of the circadian clock field, where we could manually look through the reference list of the articles that we inspected. And we can see that these were in fact like the textbook studies in the field or like actually the, the papers that everyone know and everyone should know. Maybe we can learn something uh, rather than, you know, have a blanket kind of impression and uh, maybe stigma of, uh, of these journals and have a more qualitative uh, assessment of the actual papers. It's interesting because I'm not so young that I can't remember when, when you know, Wikipedia was not great. It was that thing you were growing up in school, you always told never ever reference Wikipedia, which even at the time I thought was rubbish because I was quite liked it. Whereas now, and we were having this, so the three of us met up uh, with our other PhD friends over the weekend for a little bit of holiday. And we were talking about the podcast. And when we were talking about what we were going to talk to today, one of the things that brought was that actually we do quite often now go to Wikipedia, even as scientists, because it's such a nice little overview. And it, it does, as you said, it captures those papers that we might not actually get access to, even as scientists. Um, so yeah, Wikipedia's totally turned it around. And that, that explains quite nicely why, actually, if they've got such strict editorial guidelines, which I, I knew nothing about. The only thing I know about Wikipedia editing is that there's always a war going on between people trying to edit the same things. Actually, there's a question. Did you find much, did you, did you see that much? I want to, to add something uh, on, on the, the last point before uh, ask, uh, answering your question. So basically, uh, earlier on, uh, this big publisher uh, for the COVID, uh, they, they uh, tried to help the community by uh, leaving the, 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 the COVID paper open access. So this was, I think, a, a really nice push from their side. Uh, and uh, and somehow I'm, I'm not there to, to defend them. Uh, I, I I have as well a lot of uh, problems with paywall and and uh, uh, the the lack of accessibility of the research. But for the pandemics, they did a really great job uh, by opening this paper, and I think that helped as well uh, Wikipedians to look at those and find the best one. And actually, the fact that there are people always fighting within Wikipedia uh, reach an equilibrium at some point. And basically, you will see some reference that are maybe entering and going out. And at some point, after some discussion, because in Wikipedia, you, you have the article page, but you have as well talk page. And in this talk page, basically, uh, people will uh, debate over citation or over part of the text. And uh, this will lead, after some time, to, to really good quality article uh, in Wikipedia that, that uh, give, as you said, a very great overview of a specific topic. Did you did did you have access to those chat sides as well? Could, is that something you could delve into and see how the the back and forth goes? Have I asked a question that you're about to do? <laughs> yeah, of course. No, no, of course. I'll, I'll say this: that, that when I kind of my initial opening about Wikipedia being, um, you know, in a sense, giving us access to processes that in the past were very kind of concealed. That's what we're talking about. So Wikipedia is like the the mother of all open source. You can see everything. You can see every version of anything. Every article has a talk page that you can go into and see the different discussions. Um, and, and at that level, like it's 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 almost you know you're almost drowning in in data. Like it's almost in a sense it's almost it borders on too much data, and it's almost a struggle to to kind of stay focused on the content. And I think your question about the edit warring is interesting because you can actually see 
how on health related subjects, it's not true about like, for example, Israel and Palestine or, you know, but on health or science related articles, um, especially articles that are, you know, uh, about kind of topics in the news now, for example, like, you know, Corona disinformation, this kind of stuff, then you do have these community mechanisms that kick in that prevent a lot of these kind of, I don't know, vandalisms of the Wikipedia process. So for example, you, we didn't see a lot of edit warring. Like I looked into some of this, there wasn't a lot of that. And part of the reason is that, you know, once something is a health related issue, it's locked to public editing and only a kind of group of only the only a registered Wikipedia uh, user can do that. So it's still very open. You, yeah. you just need to be a registered user. So it's not anonymous anymore. Like the anonymity threshold, you know, like that's an obstacle. Um, so that's it's very interesting. And like, you know, like, for example, you think about like the, the whole debate about uh, the origin which in an early phase of the pandemic was actually a very contentious issue. Um, and, and at that level, like you, you, it, just Wikipedia's basic rule, do you have a citation? Wikipedia requires a citation for everything. So if your only citation is to some, you know, far crazy conspiratorial website, that doesn't just, it doesn't meet the muster. You know what I mean? Like you can't, you're just not, you're not allowed to do that. And once the article is locked, you can't just push that in. You, you can't just paste that in. You know, the, the community or the group of editors involved in the article have to be like, okay, this source seems a bit flimsy. And then in that sense, like it was just such a, like just locking articles and requiring footnotes really helped Wikipedia just completely fight off information. I've written about this also for Wired in the UK and for a, new, a number of newspapers, but it's really, it's, if you think about like the wider debate about social media and how hard it is to fight disinformation, these two single criteria, really were really a game changer like the fact that not anyone could edit but only people that you know have some standing in the community and thus have something to lose and two every claim needs a citation and just those two things did so much not to mention the fact that citations required are actually high quality ones so that's just kind of my social explanation on that i mean it sounds it, it sounds a lot like wikipedia is much better than a lot of news sources i've come across in the pandemic actually because you know news sources tend to have their own kind of bias whether even the left, good left ones have a little bit of a bias, <laughs> even if I do agree with it all. For sure. So, I mean, can, you know, Twitter and Facebook are really good examples where these are platforms that during the pandemic and American politics have gotten a lot of things wrong and didn't learn about it until probably too late, really. They're only just now starting to actually kind of take ownership that they have this responsibility. So is, is there anything there that they could learn from? Should they be looking at Wikipedia and saying we can steal these ideas? I want Jonathan to talk about the latency in this context. I think the latency that we looked into could be helped to explain that because I think the latency shows how Wikipedia stays accurate, but is not super, not the quickest in the world, like news media. So Jonathan, maybe you can talk about kind of how we, we did that research and why that kind of maybe helps answer the question. Yes. Um, so um, Wikipedia is not a newspaper. Uh, that's a, a very important point. And uh, by, by the way, there is an essay with this title uh, that uh, you, should, uh, you should look at. Um, so the, the time of Wikipedia is different from the news media. And um, what we wanted to understand using the, the, the latency metric, uh, which I will define by the following. So the, the latency is the time between the, the, the publication of the paper and when it was entered into Wikipedia. So this time interval tells you uh, how quick a reference enter into Wikipedia. And uh, so we did the analysis of the latency for the whole Wikipedia and, and based on the, on the dump uh, of uh, uh, May uh, 2020. And we did the analysis specifically for our uh, COVID uh, uh, group of articles, basically. And what we found is that uh, the, the latency was uh, larger for uh, COVID-19 uh, articles. Actually, it's, it was articles that were cited within our COVID-19 corpus, 
And those papers, we find a huge peak of uh, papers um, that were from uh, 2003. And 2003 correspond to the uh, first coronavirus outbreak. And actually, so a lot of those papers uh, were, were cited from, from, from this outbreak as a reference. And, you know, uh, the fact that there is this scientific in infrastructure that is kind of old and, and has been built uh, in the past 20 years within Wikipedia helped to, to really um, filter out wrong research or, or really um, uh, strange claims that were made in preprints or in the literature or in news media as well. And I, I think this point was, was very uh, important. So this latency metric was, was really a, a way to understand how the, the, the knowledge around the COVID-19 was structuring itself. Um, so just just to highlight this point that uh, the latency, uh, because it is built uh, re regarding to when a paper was published, it does not apply to preprints. So it's only uh, published papers. And also I think of, of another issue that uh, we saw regarding uh, the sourcing that it was, I would say in, in general, mostly kind of uh, segregated. So the articles in Wikipedia about scientific topics were not surprisingly more scientific in the sourcing that they have. And I think this is also something that separates Wikipedia from any other platform is that you have this kind of, um, how, how would you call it, like different categories of different spaces that you can go to depending on what you look for. Uh, so you can go and read about certain molecules or drugs, but you could also read about, you know, origin uh, theories of where the virus came from, which would be obviously more based on uh, news outlets. And I think this goes, and I will I will pass this now to Omer, which is a subject that I know he really likes, is how Wikipedia kind of encompasses a lot of different things and many even contradicting aspects of the same thing. Yeah, so I will jump in here and say something that I think is very important about both the time and the quality. So I would almost say that like newspapers are too quick and academia is too slow. And Wikipedia is like placing itself in a sense in the middle. Like it's it's almost like a regulated feedback mechanism, which both tries to stay up to date, but you like you don't need to be up to date, you know, every second. And the New York Times live blog needs to be updated every every second. And if you have a preprint out now, that can kind of, you know, and I, and I work in a newspaper and I'm a professional journalist, like people don't understand like how reactionary journalism is. Like you see something big, you read something big, and you have to respond, you have to get it up, you have to write it up. And I've known that like, you know, it, at the New York Times and these kind of outlets have kind of, you know, doubled, not doubled, kind of have kind of backtracked off some publications they made earlier on in the corona. And also in the sense of academia, like a lot of preprints, you know, don't make it through to publication because the publication also takes too long. And I think Wikipedia has a very kind of good sweet spot in the middle there. And now if you look at the comparison between what Lana was talking about, like the comparison between different types of articles, then it becomes really interesting because you have scientific articles about topics that are still being researched. So you have almost a lack of knowledge, but you also have knowledges about like in articles about social issues. For example, the article xenophobia in wake of coronavirus. You don't need like, you know, a nature Lancet study about that, right? But in, in those articles, you see almost the exact same bias. Like on that article, the same way the, the molecular 
like or the academic topic would prefer nature or lancet on those topics they prefer news high quality news media you know bbc reuters new york times like and so on and so forth and i think wikipedia was very good at, at, at balancing those things out so when there was no research they went to the who to the world health organization when there was no research they used government you know statistics for example and and and, and they kind of managed that but i think that the, the, the time aspect for me is very important like they want to be accurate and relevant and then it's just i think it, it's the good balance is what i wanted to say more than anything yeah i was very happy to see no fox news in the in the list that you have in the, in the pre pre yeah no no, no, no no daily mail either <laughs> we just pretend the daily mail doesn't exist it's awful <laughs> by the way wikipedia does too they banned it as a source or blacklisted it as a source like four years ago <laughs> seriously also with breitbart uh, they're blacklisted you can only use them for article daily mail can only be used as a source on wikipedia for articles pertaining to the daily mail <laughs> <laughs> good i wish we could do that on the newsstand um, so, so one of the other things you found was that, and this tracks really well with something that we found. Um, so a lot of the papers that are used tend to have quite high altmetric scores. So that's their sort of score for being shared across Twitter and things like that. Now we looked at this in sort of the first 10 months of the pandemic. So that's January, to October. And what we found was the preprints that had high altmetric scores were not necessarily correlating to those that were being cited a lot. Which I think, again, you mentioned that a lot of what you the that were being cited on Wikipedia were not actually cited by scientists an awful lot. Why do you think there's that discrepancy? Is that the, the Wikipedia editors are finding these sources through a different route to scientists? Or are scientists maybe prioritizing different things? Because we weren't really sure what an answer was for that. So I, I may have an uh, explanation for, for that. So, um, you know... In, in science, you have school of thought. You have uh, uh, scientists that were in several places and that tend to cite more their friends. There was like some really uh, interesting research about this school of thought in, in the past. And I guess that may be the, the confounder here because uh, so in science, you will look first at the, the, the big shots of your field and you will tend to cite those papers because you know that uh, they, are, they are valuable or some, somehow, uh, while in the public or in Wikipedians, they don't have this scientific training, they don't know the people, and they tend to cite really what they, they like the most, or what, which paper uh, have the most interesting question uh, uh, for them, you know? Uh, so, for instance, uh, like very recently, I, I published a, a paper um, comparing uh, COVID-19 and influenza. Uh, there was before me like two, three other groups that did that. Uh, our altmetric score is uh, sky rising. Uh, a lot of people want to understand that, but for um, for, for scientists, we had to, to send it to five journals before uh, uh, getting accepted. And uh, so the questions that are interesting to scientists are different, basically, than the questions that are interesting to the, the general public. Uh, that's the, as simple as that. I really, really agree. And I would just add almost a sociological explanation in addition to that very intelligent sociological explanation, which is that I think Wikipedia editors are agnostic. So part of Wikipedia's logic is to allow laymen or like non-experts to participate in this kind of process of editing. And you do see a lot of non, like people with, without scientific background enforcing scientific standards on COVID articles. And because they're actually agnostic towards the content, they're not related to any school of thought, they don't have any methodological axe to grind, they just want Wikipedia to stay up to date and, and, and stay, you know, to, to meet its own standards, then I think what they're doing is that they're actually, you know, for them, like finding a legitimate source via, you know, the kind of stuff that makes alt metrics what they are, 
is a more viable route than perhaps an academic whose perspective on science is completely based on their own discipline and the journals that they're used to reading. And since Wikipedia editors, even lay, like lay editors, are perhaps more open to citing, you know, papers that, you know, for a scientific for a scientist would be look a bit, you know, like maybe, I don't know, tougher to cite or, you know, problematic or something like that. So I think they're just, that, that's part of it. I, I think this discussion is really interesting because it also might be undergoing change in the scientific community because also as scientists, it is becoming very, very difficult to find sources and to know what's going on, right? Like, where do you learn about new studies? And as more and more scientists, like I recently joined Twitter <laughs> so it's a, and this is a very new experience for me and I'm just overwhelmed with all the um, sharing of new titles and also new findings. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's almost exactly what I was going to say. I, I use Twitter almost more than any other source for new papers, because if you follow the right people, you, you get the latest research before anyone else does. And there's often a discussion, there's, you know, people will often post their paper with a little Twitter thread and you get that and it's, it's oh, so much better. But is, does that does that not mean there maybe is an argument for scientists to move away from these traditional metrics of citations and things and move more towards odd metric scores and, and what is being received more widely rather than what is just being well received within the scientific community? Which is what I think preprints are really good at doing. They kind of level that field a little bit. No, but I think I think you're actually very. You're, it's true what you're saying because I think that the issue with preprints is that they do actually address a very real social issue that scientists have, and I think what was so what's so interesting about it is on the one hand, like you do need this and you do need you know scientific kind of interactions on Twitter, but simultaneously you also don't want to bastardize the entire scientific process. And peer review does have merit and does have kind of value. And I think it, it's just it's a very tough social question. I don't have an answer to it at any level. But again, just to repeat kind of, again, like Wikipedia, I think does take a very smart uh, kind of perspective on that because it does, you know, when there's no choice, it will cite a preprint. There's no other option, but generally it adopts this kind of almost preprint logic without necessarily opting for preprints. And that was what's so interesting for us that, you know, like we also, Jonathan at some point looked at the overall number of preprints on Wikipedia and like the Corona, the coronavirus articles didn't, you know, didn't have more or less, like it was roughly at the same place. I think it's very interesting because I think it's, it's quite clear that the quantity there was much more preprints about Corona than about a lot of other fields, you know, both because of the timing and kind of, you know, everyone being home. And in that sense, I think it's, it's interesting how Wikipedia uh, also kind of addresses the issues that have helped spark the preprint movement and without necessarily even citing them. Yeah, I mean, this this discussion would have been great to have a few months ago because we had this, right, we were looking at where preprints were first used. And we found that for COVID, uh, in policy documents, preprints were being used for the first time ever. And then we had this data for Wikipedia where there was this low usage and we, we just could not explain it. But now now we're getting all the explanation. It would have been great for our discussion. So I, I guess there's a really good aspect to that, right? In that you've got these agnostic editors who are not aligned with any particular they don't have their own work to, to promote, I guess. So do we want would you want more scientists getting involved in Wikipedia and kind of updating things and adding that element, or would you not? Because the good, it's a good, as you say, it's a good line between public knowledge and, and scientific knowledge. Should we be jumping in there? Omar, I just want you to to maybe discuss uh, the, the bit about the history of Wikipedia, and I think uh, the the new PDA is is just like the right answer, uh, the most relevant answer to this question. 
Uh, okay, I wanted you guys to answer because I always feel like I, my imposter syndrome acts <laughs> up and I'm like, I'm not a scientist. So I can't say what scientists should do. Um, but I will say this. I think the history of Wikipedia, much like the history of a lot of the internet, is actually much more academic than people realize. And the early version of Wikipedia, like the first project they did was called Newpedia. And what it was, was literally an attempt to translate the peer review process to an online setting. So Newpedia as a project set up in like, like I think it was like 98, 1998 or 1999, was what Jimmy Wales and Larry Sanger wanted to do was, was to get you know uh, one academic to write an article and get other academics to review it and the same kind of prestige economy that maintains academic publication would maintain this kind of online setting. What they discovered is that if it's not nature, but some unknown website called Newpedia, no one will bother not to write, not to review, not to anything. But, and then they kind of had to, to create a structural system or like a, 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 some technological and, you know, some... I think it's almost like a social network. They actually had to create a social network that would encourage people to do that review process and create safeguards to make sure that they were doing it well. So for a lot of the Wikipedia stuff, a lot of these kind of like, you know, you asked us, how is it that they cite Lancet so much? It's because there's a policy that someone wrote that said you should opt for Lancet, but that policy was never dictated. It was done through this community mechanism and it was done because there was a whole bunch of people who were like, oh, I'm really having fun editing Wikipedia. And I want to be able to, to help edit articles that I know nothing about. How can we do that? So they said, ah, oh, let's put together a sourcing policy. Like a sourcing policy as a debate and have the community have a debate about a sourcing policy. Like that is almost exactly what's missing from Facebook, right? Because on Facebook and Twitter, all links look the same. On Wikipedia, though, all, all links look the same. Not all links are treated the same way. And that's because as a community, they've developed these certain standards. No to Daily Mail, yes to The Guardian. No to Fox News, yes to The Lancet. And I think... One, you know, I think that's kind of the world in which Wikipedia is good at because it, it does know how to create those kind of systems. And your question about what scientists should edit, of course, everyone should edit. I think Wikipedia is great. Like, it, really, I do. Like, I think I know it's so stupid to say that, but like, it's great and it's really important. Like, people sit on tons of knowledge and they, and you know, they don't necessarily have outlets for it. So, Wikipedia is a good one. So yeah, I I think uh, this this last point, Omer, is is really important because not only scientists should edit more. I think everyone should edit more. And when we did the uh, circadian clock uh, research, we actually saw a number of different kind of types of editors. So we saw scientists editing, but we also saw lay people editing, but also saw like one of the most amazing examples that we saw, um, we did some investigative work and, and we found that one of the key editors in these articles was actually um, a lay person, a woman who had sleeping disorders. And she really invested herself in the literature and the knowledge and was really an amazing translator and a person who was beforehand just didn't have a place in this sort of, uh, in this sort of world. I want to kind of just quickly tell this anecdote because it's actually amazing. Uh, so when we looked at the article for Circadian Clock, we discovered that there was an editor who was working literally 24 hours a day. Like they were editing completely arithmetically. Like while, you know, if you look at a Wikipedia editor, they tend to have like, you know, a specific day or a specific hour. They do it after work, before work, whatever. But this specific user was just like all over the place. And we did, thanks to like kind of more my journalism background, we actually managed to find this person. And then we discovered it was actually a woman, American woman who suffered from a sleeping disorder who had actually relocated to Norway because it was simpler for her to live there with like, you know, in terms of like the sun cycles, whatever. And she had actually, if you looked at, at her, her academic, at her output on Wikipedia, one could argue that she had done more to make the circadian clock field accessible to the public and 
arguably any scientist. And her motivation for doing this was completely personal. Like she was a layman, she didn't knew nothing about this. And then she started reading up on it and she realized there were other people who, you know, who may benefit from this. So she opened a blog and the blog became popular. She said, oh, why don't I just move it to Wikipedia? And then you see how she was kind of like, you know, just doing almost the lion's share of the work on Wikipedia. And kind of in the wings were these scientists who would come in and be like, hey, great work, but you kind of, misstated this, maybe we can fine tune it. But her personal motivation, her personal interest in making this body of knowledge accessible is what actually kind of sparked the entire process, which we can then think about it as an academic process, because you then have scientists reviewing her, but she was really just like, you know, educating herself. That is a really nice story. <laughs> I guess within that, it's kind of some of that is where science seems to be very, very, very slowly heading towards, right? Um, we are starting to now get away from this closed peer review system and making it more transparent. So maybe we should start looking more to Wikipedia and seeing how they've done things to, to see what we should adopt and how to do it. Where do I find out about the different bioarchive licenses? This BCD, BY, CD, XY nonsense driving me nuts. Hey, that Bio have a resource for that? I've got answer for everything. That's because they have everything you need to know about preprints. Sure, they probably have the basics like info on the preprint servers, but what else is there? There's so much more. Looking to post a preprint but not sure what different journal policies are? They have a collection to help you out with that. There are meetings around preprints and associated services. If you want to know how preprint adoption has changed over time, there's even a page on that. And COVID? They have a big section on preprints and the pandemic, plus some really cool infographics for communicating preprints. And university policies? Surely they don't have that. They collect uni policies where possible. Okay, okay, they do sound pretty impressive. But is this not a bit of an echo chamber? It can be, but ASAP Bio also engage with people who don't love preprints and have concerns. So we had an excellent discussion on this very topic a couple of months ago. Is there anything ASAP Bio don't do? Honestly, no, they're so nice over there. They were so quick to jump in and support this show. It's your one-stop shop for info on preprints and open science initiatives. So head over to asapbio.org to learn more and subscribe to their newsletter for the latest in preprint news. If you want a deeper dive into the world of preprints, then look out for the next recruitment of ASAP Bio Fellows. So... Just a bit more about preprints generally. Um, so your preprint has, when I last looked, I think it had undergone three versions. I don't know if you've updated it since then as well, but could, you know, that's one of the benefits, I guess, of preprints is you can update your work. It's what we did as well. How did that, why did you update it and how did it change during those revisions? Uh, I just wanted to say that uh, this project was then kind of really off the books, uh, just as Zooming while in quarantine or lockdown. And it had uh, lacked for a long time, a lot of the practices that we normally partake in when we do research in the lab. So there's not much, uh, you don't give seminars, there is no uh, group meeting. We, don't, we really just discussed it amongst ourselves. And when we had the first version of the preprint, we decided to upload it and share it with people that we uh, trust and people that we value their opinion, but also just with everyone. So we shared it uh, on Twitter and via email uh, in any form that we managed. And then after we received comments, then we did the first uh, uh, update. And I'll, and I'll also just add very shortly that I think for us, like, you know, for me specifically also, like there's something so 
hard about kind of making peace with, you know, the version that exists. And like when we kind of published the initial preprint, we did actually get very, 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 very important feedback, which to me seemed, and also to Jonathan, I think was like, you know, stuff that we felt we had actually missed and did want to kind of readdress. And, you know, being, because it's about Wikipedia, it just made such perfect sense for us to, you know, just keep updating and, and, and kind of revisiting you know, to kind of just take full advantage of this media, I would almost say. Like, it's almost just a media is the message kind of thing. Like, like academic publishing is so hard because it's actually print or ends up being print. And then, you know, like you really can't do anything. And Wikipedia teaches us that knowledge is always an accumulative process. So in that sense, like it was just, you know, like almost like <laughs> to me, it's almost like, like the media requires us to go through with it. Yeah. So are, are you are you submitting this to a journal or are you gonna, just going to keep updating it on BioArchive? Uh, maybe Jonathan wants to talk to this, but I think we can admit that we've actually already submitted this and we are awaiting review results. Yes. Um, so basically, um, we, we had a few ideas for, for journals, but uh, now we are uh, in review in Giga Science. So we wanted uh, our paper to be uh, in an open access uh, journal, <laughs> obviously. And um, we wanted as well a journal that, that is uh, well peer reviewed, which has a good reputation, uh, which really um, uh, works towards open access. And as I did a lot of coding for, for that paper, I, I tried to develop a, a package to, to uh, explore Wikipedia history. And uh, uh, so I, I put the code uh, on several repository and, and typically this, this journal is uh, putting on phases and phases on, on this type of work. We have as well uh, a web application that uh, allows you to browse into our, um, our group of articles uh, related to, to COVID with a nice visualization, the history of Wikipedia articles related to COVID. And um, this journal really uh, is open to, to this type of interactive business and, and so on. So that's why uh, it was a good choice for us. There's so much transparency and openness with this project. I love it. It's so good. So, so I guess as a group of people who are quite different areas, uh, this will be my last question. Is there anything we can do to do our jobs better as scientists. I think the model you've got where you've got qualitative and quantitative and you're mixing these different specialities together is kind of where it's what my ideal of science would be. We'd have a lab where you know, you, you've got these different specialties working closely together. But is there anything that you would suggest we do for, for making science better, for moving it forward? As a scientist, I would say that really sharing raw data that uh, people can uh, reanalyze themselves maybe find other questions that can be asked on the same data or repeat the analysis in order to improve it is something fundamental for, for science. We need to have like good repository uh, where the, the research is, is accessible, you know, the FAIR principle, uh, I guess. And uh, so, so, uh, so, so it's, it's, it's a practice for, for data management and you need really your, uh, to, to make your data available, findable, uh, accessible. Um, open as much as possible. I know for uh, being on the medical field that it's not always possible because there is ethical issue and so on, but we should try to find good ways to anonymize the data and, and share them anyway on a, on a worldwide level because uh, aggregating data gives you more statistical power, obviously, and you can really find a uh, uh, better model if you have more data and that may explain something uh, around your data. And, uh, you know, maybe I'm, I'm good at, at 
some analysis. I don't know everything about data mining and so on. So if I share my data, anyone else can apply their favorite methods and, and make something out of it. Uh, so one small thing I want to say, I think, again, just I want to provide like a small, almost historical context to this, and I'll risk being super pretentious. Like if you look back at the history of science, a lot of science initially was actually very open. And I think a lot of science in the very, very early, early phases, I'm talking about like, you know, the first peer review or the first journal was the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society. And I think like part of what they wanted to do was exactly what Jonathan just spoke about. Like part of the idea was actually just the sharing of information more than making novel claims. And I think that over time, and I mean like over the past 150, 200 years, uh, some of that kind of almost initial scientific ethic has been forgotten. Like we've almost forgotten what's the point of what we're doing. Like, and I think in that sense, uh, the preprints do offer a very good solution to like, you know, for example, uh, sharing negative results, like sharing things you, you know won't get published. And in that sense, I think it does create the conditions needed for solving some of the kind of wider problems that science is perhaps facing so that's one thing and the other thing i do want to say i think that's just really really important like i think the collaboration is huge i think like over dedication specific disciplines and specific methods uh can can come at a very big cost maybe maybe i can jump in omer you were just like leading exactly to what i wanted to say obviously i absolutely agree with what uh, jonathan and omer just said and i think that the last point is what i would want to talk about which is in, in, in a very small measure, what, what we did here is the, the collaboration and maybe we can take this historic view of what science is and what the job of a scientist is. And I, I take issue with the narrow view and kind of this uh, specification that we all undergo. And I think if, well, we should each be expert in, in our fields, but also this collaboration and bringing together different fields and different worldviews, uh, whether it's um, perspective from other fields, I think this could really benefit. And, and this is one of the things that I really enjoy doing. Yeah, I, I I agree. I I hate just doing one thing over and over again and being boxed into to your sort of specialism. I think it's nice to get out and do, and that's what all the great scientists at the start were all like that, right? They all did a bunch of different things. They didn't just do their one thing. Um, I I think it's I think we need to get back to that a bit. And like peer review, we originally started off as this thing where it's just do we want to take your paper or not? It's not a thing where now where we get your paper and we decide what we would do instead, and then we go make you do all those things just to make us happy. It's not about how good the paper is as it stands, which is a, a shame, really. But I think that is that is a great ending point. They're all really positive little points to end on. I think so. I, I just wanted to say thank you just in terms of like the chance to come. And I think this even this podcast is just such a rare example of uh, of like the willingness of scientists like scientists like yourself to reflect on kind of the more social side of what we're doing. And I think that's really, really important. So thank you for putting together this podcast and thank you for letting us be among its first episodes. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks a lot. It was amazing. I really enjoyed the, the discussion. Thank you so much. Okay, and that is the show. If you enjoyed listening, then hit that subscribe button for more and leave us a review on whatever platform it is you're listening on. You can reach out to us on Twitter at MotionPod or online at preprintsinmotion.com. Didn't enjoy that? Well, we're all scientists here, so send us your review and let us know what works or what you'd like to hear more of, or less of. But until next time, have a good week.